This morning we are continuing in a sermon series that we're kind of moving in and out of throughout this year as we we work our way through the book of Romans, uh, hopefully by the end of the year, not hopefully, by the end of the year we will get through the entire book of Romans. Uh, and last Sunday I mentioned that we're at this this place in, in Paul's letter to the church in Rome where everything kind of pivots, where everything kind of kind of shifts, where it moves from Paul's commentary about what what the gospel does for us and in us to our response to the gospel, to what we are called to do with the gift that we have been given. And it all hinges in chapter 8 on the concept of, of the Spirit. So in the first part of the chapter, what we looked at last week, we're reminded to respond to the gospel by setting our minds on things of the Spirit as opposed to the things of the flesh. And I, I mentioned last week that we would spend some time this morning really unpacking what we mean when we talk about spirit, and, and we will, but, but the reality is we could spend an entire year talking about the spirit, and many of us would still be sitting there thinking, what did we really talk about? It, it is a complex, hard thing to grasp, and I actually, I actually think that in some ways it's, it's not intended to be fully grasped as we learn to live into it, as we learn to, to define our life together through and by the Spirit. Now, typically, when, when most Christians think of, of the Spirit of God, we, we, we think of the New Testament. We, we, we think of Pentecost, which we're going to be celebrating in, in a few weeks, that, that, that moment where the Holy Spirit comes and, and the apostles get up and they preach and the church is birthed and we sing happy birthday church and, and all those sorts of things. We're going to be doing that on, on, on June 5th, which is also Music Appreciation Sunday, which is, is appropriate because often music connects us to the Spirit. And so we, we think of that, but, but the reality is there's plenty of mention of the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures as well. There's plenty of mention. In addition to what Pastor Daryl read earlier about God, that imagery of the shepherd where God gathers us together, which is a lot of what we're going to be focusing on today is how the Spirit kind of brings us into community with one another. There's another place in Ezekiel where he prophesies about the Spirit putting dry bones or giving dry bones life as he God breathes into those dry bones. But there's other places, the creation story, which tells of the Spirit of God hovering over the waters before anything exists. And that same Spirit of God that hovered over over creation before anything else other than water exists is the Spirit that is breathed into the life of humankind. So at the beginning of Scripture, we see this big picture of the Spirit hovering over the waters and this intimate picture of the Spirit breathing life into humankind, breathing life into us. The truth is God's Spirit is complex and it's often hard to define. But we usually realize that Spirit as we we live together. In the New Testament, we'll we'll look at these some more later, we, we, we see that the Spirit is defined as the advocate what, what Jesus promised. I'm not going to leave you or forsake you, but I will leave someone for you, the advocate to, to, to be with you. It's that, that Pentecost moment that I mentioned. It's the spirit that rushes through. But we also see over and over again in both the Hebrew Scriptures and, and, and the New Testament, in, in both places, that the spirit is often the one who puts the, the, the words on the lips of, of prophets, 
of, of poets, of, of people who are, are preaching, that the, the Spirit draws us together, but it also acts as, as the one who empowers people in a community to follow God with one another. So as I said, the, the Spirit is complex, but, but we tend to realize it as we live in community with one another. So after Paul contrasts living by, by Spirit and living by flesh, he writes this, starting at verse 14. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I'll never forget a, a phone call I received about 12 years ago from, from my friend Sydney. Haley and I first met Sydney and, and his, his wife Edith five years prior to that phone call. Wild to think about that we've known them for this long. Five years prior to that phone call on our first short-term trip to Malawi. Sydney and I were both in seminary when we first met. Edith and, and Haley were, were both elementary school teachers, so we, we just, we hit it off. It wasn't hard. We, we, we hit it off. They were, they were living and serving in Malawi. We were in Southern California, but we, we actually had a lot in common. And when he called, we, we were living in Malawi at the time, definitely closer, but we were in different, different parts of the country. So it wasn't like we, we saw each other on a weekly basis. I picked up the phone and he said, Brother Dave, that's how he often referred to me, Brother Dave, Edith is with a girl. I paused. What do you mean? What do you mean? And I think he could tell by my pause that I was confused. And he said, Brother Dave, he repeated himself, Brother Dave, Edith is with a girl and I want you to name her. I didn't even know Edith was pregnant. It just wasn't something that you, you talked about in their culture. It just wasn't something that you openly discussed. When we finally understood what was happening, there, there was all kinds of, of celebration. And then Sydney circled back. So will you? Will you name my daughter? I went from not knowing that there was a child to being asked to name his daughter who I hadn't met yet in a matter of minutes. I told him that, yes, we, we, would, we, would, we would name, name his daughter, but um, I, I would need a day to think about it and that we would call him back the next day. Giving Rebecca Grace, or Chisomo, is her name in Chichewa, Pulabanda, her name, it changed the way that I have thought about family. It changed the way that I have ever understood what, what family means. Having a, a friend name a child in, in a, is a Malawian custom that, that, that was once more common really than it is today. But it helped to, to reinforce the idea that a child's community really is bigger than their nuclear family. Much, much bigger than their, their nuclear family. It, it was a common practice at, at, at a time in Malawi. So when Paul writes about adoption, 
being children of God and, and about crying out to Abba, to Father, here in Romans 8, we're given a picture of a family that is very different, very different than what most of us think of when we think of family. It's a family, or, or a community rather, born out of the Spirit, where, where the Spirit is, is realized, that moves us from being enslaved to one way of life, held back by one way of life, into a, a new way of journeying together, a new way of, of walking with one another. Now, adoption, it, it wasn't really a, a common practice in, in Hebrew or, or Near Eastern culture, but it was known in Rome. So Roman citizens like, like Paul and the readers of his letter would have understood this practice, and, and it would have been a powerful metaphor for them. Typically, adoption occurred in Rome when a, when a wealthier person didn't have, uh, didn't have a son to, to leave his wealth to. So when a person would look for an adopted heir, they would typically look for, they'd look for a male in that, that age, and, and, and they would look for someone that didn't matter what their, their age was. It could be a young boy, it could be a teenager, it could be an adult. It, it didn't matter. But as soon as a formal adoption occurred, there were four drastic steps that, that took place between a father and their, their new son. Old debts were paid including any sort of former legal obligations or trouble that the new son had encountered. The father took it all on. A new name was given to the adopted child. The, the new father immediately didn't just assume all of the debt that that person had, but also took on their future liability. They committed to, to anything else that was going to come. And then the, the new son also had an obligation, a responsibility of sorts to, to, to do what his father asked. So in Rome, being adopted was both a privilege and a responsibility. But really it was mostly a gift. And Paul lists five gifts that, that come with this idea of adoption that, that connects us to the, the spirit or the family that is, is knitted together by the spirit. First, first is, it's the gift of, of security. He contrasts being children of God and slaves who live in fear. A slave or a servant usually uh, obeys their master because if they didn't, they would be punished. If they made mistakes or if they get in trouble, it might actually cost their job. And so Paul is saying, look, that's one relationship. That's one relationship, but that's not the sort of relationship that exists in, in the family that is drawn together by the Spirit. In a, in a moment of public confession of, of sorts, this, this might shock some of you, but there's plenty of times where me as a dad, in my role, I found myself doing and saying things that I never thought I would do or say before I was a parent. Moments where our kids push and push and push and push and all lash out in response and use the same phrase that my dad used with me growing up that I hated. Because I said so. Because I'm your dad and you should listen to me. Because I'm the parent and you're the child. A child shouldn't have to live in constant fear that they're letting their parents down. 
or that their relationship pretends on or depends that their relationship depends on how they act or on how they perform. And, and Paul, he's just he's contrasting these, these two types of relationships, saying, saying, look, the spirit driven family is different. It's the sort of family where we are invited to live and to operate on a daily basis without the fear of getting in trouble. It's what we talked about last week at the start of Romans 8, where we read that there's absolutely no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So next is the the gift of authority. And in the Roman house, a servant or a slave had absolutely no say in how their daily routine looked. None. They, they just had to do whatever their master had to do or said to do. But children, they were a, a little bit higher on the hierarchy of the household, all because of the name that they had been given. They had authority because of that name. In the same way, those who are in Christ walk in this world with, with a different kind of authority. We've been given authority, given the authority of the Father. I think it's what's behind the, the, the words in, in John's gospel where, where he's talking uh, with, where Jesus is talking with his disciples about how he is going to, to leave them to go be with the father. And he says, you know what? Yes, I'm, I'm leaving. And we, you're not going to understand this, but, but I'm leaving. But those who believe and trust in me, you are going to do even greater things than I did. You have my authority is what Jesus tells his disciples. Can you imagine what it would have been like to be one of the apostles and to hear those words? These were the guys who had seen everything that, that Jesus had done. These, these were, the, were, were the guys who, who walked with him. They had seen him perform miracles. They had seen him raise the dead and, 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 and seen him teach with authority where, where even all of the, the public authority figures said, who is this? Who teaches with this sort of authority? And Jesus said, you're going to do things that are even greater than that. The authority that the children of God are given by the Spirit should give those who are in Christ a certain type of confidence. And I don't want to be careful here. When when I say a certain type of confidence, it's not that we have the right to go around and and, and point around, point out everybody's shortcomings, point out everybody's sin and say, you know, I've I've got the authority given to me by, by Jesus Christ. You're wrong. I'm right. That's not what I'm talking about. The authority that comes from being in God's family has to do with knowing the one who is ultimately in control. And his authority over sin and death is extended to us. So we no longer have to fear those things, no longer have to be enslaved to those things. And then Paul uses these, these incredibly precious words. As we become sons and daughters, we, we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, more often than not, when, when we think about God and we, we connect names to God, we, we default to these big kind of grandiose theological terms. Holy God, holy, the one who's totally set apart. Creator God, the one who created the entire universe. The God of grace, the God of mercy, titles like that. But here, we get something a little different. Abba, is, it's the Aramaic word that is best translated as daddy, as daddy. It's a word that Jesus used when praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. It, it's, it's an incredibly intimate, personal 
name. So the invitation to belong to the community created by the Spirit is an invitation to approach the creator of the universe in a way that extends way beyond formal titles. God isn't just this this distant being sitting far away, pulling on the puppet strings of humankind. God longs for us to know him as a child knows a parent. Daddy. There's nothing quite like coming home from a a long day, a long day from work and and being greeted by the word daddy. In, In one word. My, my, my kids somehow have the ability to wipe the slate clean. Now, if they use a different word, it might just aggravate what I was thinking of earlier in the day. But when they use that intimate word, daddy, it just wipes the slate clean. So when we cry out, Abba, we're, we're letting down our guard. We're not worrying about having the right words to pray. And we're not thinking about how much of the Bible we, we really know. We're simply recognizing that we are with our parent that we've been accepted for no other reason than being God's children. One of my, my favorite authors uh, was a guy named uh, Brendan Manning, and he, he wrote the book titled uh, Abba's Child. It's one of those books that I can go back to over and over and over, and over again and read it every year. Um, all kinds of great quotes in, in, in the book. But, but one, of, one of his quotes asks a very poignant question. He writes, Has the thunder of God loved the world so much, been so muffled by the roar of religious rhetoric that we are deaf to the word that God could have tender feelings for us? Has the thunder of God loved the world so much, been so muffled by the roar of religious rhetoric that we are deaf to the word that God could have tender feelings for us? Abba, Daddy. So as we live in a spirit-shaped community, our identity as Abba's children should be, should be front and center before we take on any other title. Before we take on any other title, we, you, me, us, we are God's children. And that reality should guide how we live each and every day, how we interact with one another here in the church and how we interact with folks who are outside the church as well. In verse 16, Paul is responding to a hypothetical question of how can we really know that we're God's children? How, how do we really know it? I know we, we talk about it, but how do we know that that's really, really the case, really true? The, the word translated in, in this verse of assurance, it's, it's uh, to testify. It's, it's the Greek word that gives us the English word martyr. Originally, it had to do with with solving a difficult court case. So how do we really know we've been called as God's children? The Spirit not only calls us, it also testifies on our behalf. It not only creates the community, it stands with us in community. It gives us those, those little nudges that we need to remind us that we are a part of something bigger than ourselves. Earlier I mentioned the moment in John's Gospel where, where Jesus promised that the Holy Spirit was coming, that that advocate. And there's a debate to which Paul was referring to here when he, he wrote, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit. A bunch of theologians sometimes debate over what that, that really means. But I think he's using different words to capture the same concept that, that John is capturing in his Gospel where he says, 
The advocate is coming to stand with you, to testify on, on your behalf, to be with you. In the simplest of terms, the Spirit comes alongside us as we live with one another in community to advocate for us and remind us that we are really a part of the family. One of my favorite classes in, in seminary, it was taught, uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a class on adolescent development, and it was, was, was taught by uh, both the School of Theology and the School of Psychology. They came together for this, this one class, and one of the lines that, that I'll never forget was about how girls who are entering adolescence are the most social beings on the planet. That it's always been true. Girls who are entering adolescence are the most social beings on the planet. They run around with little antennae on their head just saying, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Looking for a place where they belong. And when they're met with the answer of no, they move on. They go to the next place where they're being asked that question. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Until they find a place where the answer is yes. It's one of the many reasons, many, many reasons that churches like ours need to have a strong youth program so that when they show up and they're asked, do you love me? Our response is yes, because developmentally at that age, they're not going to ask their family. They're going to ask a different body. But it's not just girls emerging into adolescence who are looking for a place to belong. We all are. We all are. We're all asking that question. We we might just do it with what we think is a little more clout and a little more class as we go around and saying, do I fit in here? Do I belong? Do I have a place? And we need to hear the Spirit saying, yes. Yes, you do. And when someone new comes into our community, that response needs to be, yes. We are a Spirit-shaped community. Yes, you have a place here. And belonging to that, that family, Paul writes, it includes an inheritance. He, he writes, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. Those in the, the Roman church who were familiar with the story of the Israelite people might understand this, the concept of inheritance differently than those who, who understood adoption. They would have known that the promised land was to be Israel's inheritance. And Israel, as a people were to be God's inheritance. The Israelites were essentially God's living legacy. And now, Paul reminds us, that that legacy is extended. God's children share in what Peter calls in the introduction to his first epistle, an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away. Yet here Paul takes it one step further. We become co-heirs with Christ, sharing in his suffering, sharing in his glory. Think about that for a moment. Co-heirs with Christ. He's saying that we don't just sit passively and observe God's glory in Christ. We participate in it. That's what it means to be defined, to be a community defined by the Spirit. There's a, a bittersweet age, stage, I should say, of being a, a parent to a baby. This really kind of bittersweet moment. Well, maybe it's not bitter to everyone, but it was at least, at least to me. It's usually sweet to every, every parent. It's, it's that moment when you're walking around trying to get a child to fall asleep. And why I say it's bitter to me is because it usually came early in the morning or late at night. 
But that, that sweet moment where, where we see babies do something. My son, my son did this all the time. We would be walking around our neighborhood when he, when he was a newborn. And he'd fall asleep and he'd go through this cycle every time. He'd start upright in my, in my arms, just wide awake, looking at the world. Then he'd realize what was happening. Dad, is this some sort of trick? What's going on? And he'd start crying. Then out of nowhere, he'd put his head on my shoulder and he'd doze off for a minute. And then he'd wake up again and say, what's happening? What's happening? Eventually, he'd stop fighting and accept that he needed to sleep on his dad's shoulder. Sometimes I think we approach our relationship with our Heavenly Father in the same way. God holds us. God walks with us. God tells us things are going to be okay. God calls us into community. We push back a bit. Say, I don't know. I don't know if I really want this. It's scary. Maybe we even cry. Maybe we, we even complain. And eventually we rest our shoulders and accept that we are loved. Or rest our head on God's shoulder and accept that we are loved. May we know that we are loved by Abba Father. And that we have a place in the family. Let's pray. Abba, Father, thank you for loving us and for calling us together by and through the Spirit. We pray these things in your name. Amen.